Bill gave this talk April 9th, 1947. It's a part of his closing in his talk. And he said, I want to remind myself and any who would listen that AA is not a personal success story. It is instead the story of our colossal human failures now converted into the happiest kind of usefulness by that divine alchemy, the living grace of God. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Coming at you from Studio A, deep in the heart of Texas, on this here episode number 231, that was the voice of Phil, Chicago Phil, that is, that you heard at the beginning of this here episode, and you are going to hear so much more from him in just a moment, but first things first. This episode is being brought to you by Jane and Soren and Tom and Nick. Do you know what Jane and Soren and Tom and Nick did? Well, let me fill you in. They went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a, a contribution. So thank you so much. Jane and Soren and Tom and Nick. So let me tell you what's going on in my head as I'm doing that. As I get to those last two names, Tom and Nick, I'm wishing there was Harry afterwards, right? So I I could say Tom, Nick, and Harry. But there is no Harry uh, with a contribution this week, so we can't do that. But nonetheless, and I know it's not Nick, I know it's Dick, but anyway. So thank you again, Jane and Soren and Tom and Nick. This episode is coming right out to Ewan's. <laughs> As a reminder, for those of you uh, who are interested in the transcripts, we have had many of you in the past ask about the transcripts. You can go to our website, and when I say transcripts, transcripts to the episodes of what we're recording here. Some of you like to see it in writing. You can go to our website, soberspeak.com, and click on the sober. Uh, oh gosh, what do you, it, it, anyway, just go up to the top and you can see it. There's something about transcripts up there. All I know is the lovely, the lovely Mrs. M puts those out every week and I'm most appreciative that she does that. Um, and we also have on the website, the top 
episodes. When I say top episodes, these are the most listened to and voted on by listeners for 2019, 2020, and 2021, because I have a lot of people ask me, where do I start? You have so many episodes, Mr. John M. Uh, Well, you can start there if you'd like, uh, but uh, anyway, that is on our website if you want to go look at all of that. All right, now on to little, little, what am I, I don't even know why I said that. Now on to Chicago Phil. By the way, I got a, a call from uh, my my friend Steve G this week. And Steve G was at this event where we, where we recorded Chicago Phil. And he said, hey, um, has that been released yet? And I'm saying to Steve, Um, You know, Steve, if you actually listen to the podcast, you would know whether or not it has been released. Steve will come up to me on a consistent basis and say, hey, have you ever met so-and-so? And And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, Steve, I have. Uh, In fact, they've been on the podcast like three times now. If you would just tune in, you would know who I'm meeting. But anyway, so Steve and Chicago Phil, this is now coming out for you and Chicago Phil. We recorded this at the Tri-City Speaker Meeting here in North Texas. Phil is a former altar boy that has been sober for 46 years and is a self-proclaimed CPA. That's a Catholic Polish alcoholic. Phil talks about Chuck Chamberlain, Chuck C. Uh, Phil also talks about his experiences in show business and uh, in in particular the various uh, opera houses that he uh, was in as both a child and as an adult. He talks about his favorite bar in Chicago named the Amber Lantern. (laughs) We talk, he talks about Jack and the Beanstalk, and then he also uh, discusses the 12 words that he, Phil, Chicago Phil, lives by. So, ladies and gents, uh, please, without further ado, help me to welcome Chicago Phil. Uh, enjoy this, and we will have plenty of oh, listener feedback at the end of the episode. Enjoy. It's cold tonight, huh? <laughs> Man. I wouldn't come out to hear me. <laughs> no way. In one episode of Cheers, Cliff is seated at the bar describing the buffalo theory to his buddy Norm. I don't think I've ever heard the concept explained any better than this. Well, you see, Norm, it's like this. A herd of buffalo can only move as fast as the slowest buffalo. And when the herd is hunted, it is the slowest and weakest ones at the back that are killed first. This natural selection is good for the herd as a whole because the general speed and health of the whole group keeps improving by the regular killing of the weakest members. I love your faces when I read this. I just love it. <laughs> They're all going like, what? In much the same way, the human brain can only operate as fast as the slowest brain cells. Now, as we know, Excessive intake of alcohol kills brain cells, but naturally it attacks the slowest and weakest brain cells first. In this way, regular consumption of beer eliminates the weaker brain cells, making the brain a faster and more efficient machine. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, and that norm is why you always feel smarter after a few beers. <laughs> I love that show. My gosh, that was my corner bar. I mean, I drank in a place like that. My name is Phil. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and I'm sober tonight solely through the grace of God and the fellowship of this program. And since April 9th in 1975, and I'm very grateful for that. I'm grateful for the support that this row and my friend in the back have given my wife, my cousin, and one of my sponsees and, and a close friend of mine and another guy that I'm close with. I thank you all for coming tonight and, and supporting me. And, uh, oh, I'm a CPA, by the way, a Catholic Polish alcoholic. <laughs> and I'll tell you, this, this, this guy walks in the bar, sits down, and this will be about the end of the, the funny stuff. Uh, maybe. Uh, this guy walks in, sits down on the bar, and he has two vodkas. And the bartender get, pours two vodkas, and he pays for it, walks out. Comes in the next night, two vodkas. Walks. This goes on for 30 days, every night, two vodkas. That's all it. Walks out. 31st night, he walks in, two vodkas. The bartender says, what is it with your two vodkas? And he says, well, I'm Polish. And he says, what does that have to do with this? He says, well, I, when I left Poland... I left one of my best friends behind, and when I drink, I have a drink with him. And he said, oh, good. Well, I'll see you tomorrow night. Comes in the following night. He said, I'll have one vodka. He said, did your friend die? He says, no, no, no. I've stopped drinking. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> denial is a part of this illness. I mean... It's all, it's all denial, denial, you know, it could never happen to me. But, um, as you can tell by my accent, I'm, I'm still a Chicagoan. That's where I was born. I came from a large, uh, family. My dad had 13 brothers and sisters. Four of them died during the pandemic and the, uh, the Spanish flu back in the early 1900s. He lost, I lost four uncles. I never knew them because I was too young, naturally. And my mom had four sisters and big family. <clears throat> and uh, there are three things that I learned about drinking through my family. And the first one, that, that, that alcohol was a gift from God. Uh, I was an altar boy as a young boy. Helped the priest serve mass and the priest would hold up the chalice with the wine and so forth. And, and I, I learned in the Bible, wine is the substance that gladdens men's hearts. It's been used for thousands of years. And most of the major religions of the world use it. Now, Baptists, they use real good grape juice. <laughs> real good. And there are some other denominations of borderline, you know. And uh, one time I broke into, uh, we walked into the sacristy before the priest... <laughs> I'm, I'm told this is a podcast. I got to be careful. We walked into the, I don't want anybody to be arrested. I walked into the, we walked into the sacristy and we got a bottle of sacramental wine and it was sweet and, uh, we passed it around and nothing happened to me. And, and the first, my higher power, his first miracle was he transformed the water into wine. That's my kind of guy. <laughs> So that's the first thing I learned about alcohol, that it was somehow used in a spiritual way. The second thing that I learned about using alcohol was that it was good for the inside and the outside of our body. 
And after World War II, I was living with my babcha, which is Polish for grandmother, and my jaja, which is Polish for grandfather, and my chacha, which is Polish for aunt, my aunt Lala. Marty, Marty got to meet my mom and my aunt Lala and never met my grandparents. But after World War II, we all lived together because millions of people were coming back from the Eastern Front and the Western Front. And, and so we all lived together in a, in a two flat on the north side of Chicago. And my grandmother would babysit for me. And one time I came home and I had fallen down and I had scraped my arm and it was bleeding like crazy. And, uh, Bapcha said, put your arm over the sink. I'm going to take some rubbing alcohol and pour it on your wound and I'm going to kill the germs. Well, I love to say, this was after World War II. I thought she said she was going to kill the Germans. See, I couldn't, I, the, but the bad Germans, the Nazi Germans, not the good ones. And oh, it stung and sure enough, it healed. And her other remedy for my, my stomach ache was Jobrówka, which is Polish for buffalo grass. It's a, it's a, it's a Polish vodka. It's, they have, they have bison in Poland. They're about that big. They're not, they're not very high. <laughs> Tiny bison. And, uh, and she'd give me a little teaspoon of that, and it would take away the pain in my stomach. And my grandmother's other remedy for stomach aches were animas. <laughs> I've never found it necessary to go into Animaholics Anonymous. <laughs> I stay away from that. So I learned that alcohol was good for the outside of my body and the inside of my body, a gift from God. And the third thing I learned about using alcohol, it used to have fun. And I came from a very gregarious, outgoing family. I come from a family of entertainers. We were like the Polish Van Trapp family, if you ever watch, if you ever watch The Sound of Music. My mother and father were opera singers. I have aunts and uncles were entertainers. My grandparents were, were performers on the Polish stage in Chicago. Chicago had the largest Polish population in the United States in the, in the 30s and 40s and, and even into the 50s. And uh, my mother and father were the founding members of Lyric Opera of Chicago. They, they go back to the 50s. So I was raised in entertainment, classical music, good voices, a lot of fun, a lot of singing. And uh, the first 33 years of my life I spent in show business. And uh, the way I learned to have fun with alcohol was at Polish wakes. At few, at, when you go to, you say, say your prayer, and, and then you go to the bar next door. Every every funeral parlor in Chicago has a bar close by. It's the same way it is in L.A. and New York. And the reason why it's there is wine is a substance that gladdens men's hearts. There, 90% of the people who drink alcohol, maybe 93%, do not have a problem with it. It's it's 10 to 7% of people like me that they just, I can't drink. I can't handle that stuff. I got a bad allergy to it. Boy, is it a bad allergy. And, uh, and so we'd, we'd go next door to the bar and sit down, and Mom and Dad, would, Mom, they drank Jim Beam. That was their Jim Beam bourbon. That was their deal. And they do a uh, 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 Michelob uh, beer chaser. So Mom would walk in, and she was a beautiful woman. My mother was gorgeous. I mean, it, she was just... She was just fantastic. And my dad, he was a very handsome man. They, they were the two most charismatic people I will have ever met in my life. I remember the first time when I took my fourth step, 
and I was writing down the very first memory I could ever, I ever had. I'm three months old. I'm laying in the crib, and I'm looking at my... I'm three months old. That's how far back I can go. I'm three months old, laying in the crib, and I'm looking at my mom and dad standing in the doorway backlit with a light, and I'll never forget it. That's my, that was my, they were my higher power from the day I was born. They were the two most charismatic people I will ever have met in my life. They were like the moths of the flame. When they'd walk into a room, you know, I heard the, I, uh, I had the privilege of hearing Chuck Chamberlain many times, and I visited with Chuck when he would talk at the, at, in Waco at the, or, uh, Brazos Riverside Conference. And Chuck could, would walk in a room and he had an aura about it. Have any of you ever read New Pair of Glasses? Have you ever you listened to Chuck Chamberlain? And he had the most beautiful blue eyes. You would look at that guy and you go, wow, there's, there was something just amazing. And that's the way it was with my parents. When they walked in, there, there was the same kind of thing with them. I just, so mom would order that Jim Beam and flip it down and she'd take the beer chaser and she'd go, <laughs> and dad would do the same thing, you know, and beer chaser. <laughs> and the bartender would give me a little root beer and I'd sip it and I'd go. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were my higher power. I did anything. My, nick, my nickname with them was Buddy. They, took, they showed me show business from, from the ground floor up. They took me every place, all their entertaining. They used to sing in synagogues and, and, and different churches and concerts and, and naturally the opera. And, and uh, I learned so much from my mom and dad about show business. And what I learned about alcoholism was one day after my mom and dad were performing in, in the opera house in Chicago, we were heading home and this guy jumped on the hood of my dad's car at a stoplight and he pulled out a bottle of water, squirted it on the windshield. My dad pulled out a quarter, flipped it to the guy, and the guy wiped off the window and he walked away. And I said, what's that all about? And dad said, he's a bum. He's been drinking. He's an alcoholic. And he's going to take that quarter and he's going to buy. And now this is, I'm, I'm 10 years old. This is 1902. And... Uh, <laughs> Okay, I'm 79 years old. You don't, you don't have to say, how old is that guy? Um, and, and, and he walked away, and my dad said, he lives here on Skid Row. And I went, to, now, Chicago had one of the largest Skid Rows in the United States. It's n nothing to brag about. As, as the Bowery in New York and other places, L.A., big cities, had their Boweries. And dad and mom and I were driving down the street, and the windows were open, and it was a warm evening, and... I could smell the stench of vomit and, and booze all mixed together. I saw men and women literally laying in the gutter, literally laying in the gutter. People's, it, it, was, it was just surreal, surrealistic seeing people staggering down the street. My dad said, don't ever let this happen to you, buddy. That was my nickname. I was their buddy. And I said, no, I, I won't. He said, if you want to drink... At home, he says, you can start when you're 16 years old, but I don't want you ever to go outside and, and uh, get into trouble with booze because we love you. And I said, I love you guys too, always. We call each other guys, you know, up north guys. Down here, it's y'all, <laughs> y'all. And, uh, 
and there we were, the two of us talking about the effects of, of alcohol, how people are devastated by it. And my dad died of an alcoholic brain tumor in 1979. And they didn't find my mother's body for three days. She died in 1993. Marty called me and told me to come home. And I said, why? She said, just come home. And I went home and she said, your mom's dead. They didn't find her. She laid there for three days. The last thing she did was kill a fifth of vodka. They were, they were in the early stages of alcoholism when I was with them. And we drank together and sang together. And, and I believe any alcoholic who dies from this disease leaps into the arms of a loving God. There is no doubt about it. And none of us is going to hell. We've already been there. We have already been there. We've paid our dues. We're going we're gonna to go to that big meeting in the sky and, and along with St. Peter's going to be Bill W. and Dr. Bob greeting us and saying, job well done. You didn't take that drink. You died a natural death, maybe. <laughs> I don't know how you died. but And, uh, and that's, that's my belief. And I, I, I miss my mom and dad today. I pray for them every night. I always pray for mom and dad every night and, and all my deceased friends and relatives. I do a lot of prayers for them in the morning and uh, in my meditations. The first drink I had for me, I was 13 years old. I, uh, I, oh, Marty's going to hate this one. Uh, I was 13 years old and I hung around with a gang and uh, we, uh, we hung around and uh, I drank under peer, peer pressure. We were standing next to a pier in Chicago. We <laughs> couldn't. Right, honey? No. Okay, I won't do it. I won't do it anymore. Um, and uh, I hung around with three guys, and we didn't want to drink like our parents. From the, uh, we didn't want to drink like our parents. I, I, my mom and dad were ethnic. They didn't leave the old Polish neighborhood, and my buddies were were ethnic too in the cult. Chicago was a melting pot, and uh, we didn't want to drink like our parents. So we wanted to drink like the high rollers on on Michigan Avenue, Lakeshore Drive. So we we were reading an Esquire magazine back then, and and we they had a drink of the month, and the drink of the month for that month was Black Russians. Kahlua, vodka, crushed ice. I'll never forget it. That was my first real attempt at drinking. We got a thermos bottle. We called it the bear. We got in the back seat of the car. We all had our thermos bottles, and I opened up mine, and the fumes hit my nose, and I went, it was like E.T. It touched my heart, you know. And I went, "Wow! If one drink's gonna make, if one drink's gonna make me feel like I'm smelling this, I'm going for it." And I drank it, and I finished the thermos bottle. See, I never drank for taste. I don't understand people who drink for taste. Those are non-alcoholics. They got the little umbrellas and the cherries and the, you know the salt, and I could care less. Just put it in a glass can bottle. I don't care. And and I finished the thermos bottle and I jumped out of the car. Now the car was going 35 miles an hour. <clears throat> it's not too cool. And they grabbed me, pulled me back in. They gave me the nickname of Bugs. I thought it was Job of the Hut. You know, I I just com- it completely transformed me that night. And they gave me the nickname of Bugs. And whenever I did something buggy, as a result of my drinking, that that name that name stuck on me and. And uh, 
I wanted to be a tough guy. That was one of my ambitions, this wannabe. And the neighborhood that I lived in, like I said, was very ethnic. We had a lot of people, different nationalities, naturally. One nationality is known for forget about it, you know. And uh, I wanted to join their gang. And they said, no, you can't. And I thought it was because I was so bad. And they said, no, you're going to give us a bad name. <laughs> and if you'd look at my grade school yearbook, uh, you'd see, well, did you invent the word nerd? And no wonder you drank, you know. And I pushed myself on these guys, and they finally made me the lookout to the lookout to the lookout. <laughs> Inner city stuff. And, uh, and I tried to be this tough guy. And one night, uh, they were all congregating in the schoolyard. And, and uh, I'm, I'm saying the seven words you can't say on TV. And I got my hair in a DA. And I got a pack of Lucky strike rolled, Strikes rolled up in my T-shirt. And you know that deal, right, brother? And, and, I, got, and I got paperclip keychain. And I, I'm such a coward. I have ballpoint tattoos. You know what I mean? <laughs> They're all... And all of a sudden, two guys grabbed me by either arm, slammed me against the schoolyard wall, and one guy pulled out a switchblade in front of me, and they stuck it in my throat, and they made me chug a, line, chug a lug of pint of wine, pint of whiskey, and a quart of beer. And believe you me, brothers and sisters, you'll do anything with a stiletto knife sticking in your throat. And that's, the, that's not the very first night I was accosted by a weapon in my old neighborhood. But that's the very first night I ever had a blackout. It's the very first night I got in trouble with the police. It's the very first night I ran away. I passed out on the front porch of where my mom and dad were living. I was puking straight up. And my dad looks down at me and he says, Philip, what's wrong? Now it's not buddy. But Philip, what's wrong with you? And I said, Dad, I've been smoking. You know that when you go to meetings, <laughs> you know when you go to meetings, and you see the sign, what you hear here, when you leave here, let it stay here. That came from my neighborhood. <laughs> you keep your mouth shut. You don't rat on anybody. If anybody here wants to take a fifth step with a person that will carry it to his grave forever, it's me. I learned that. When I walked into a meeting, I said, yeah, don't worry about it. I know how to keep. I've been keeping my mouth shut forever, you know, until I opened it up in the fourth and fifth step. And I finally, I finally let those things out. And uh, I was a sophomore at Holy Trinity High School in Chicago, Brothers of the Holy Cross. I remember walking in the next day, and I took a drink of water. I got drunk all over again. I was so hungover. And I held a knife in my own throat for the next 19 years. And April, April uh, 6th of 1975, I, uh, I was eating in a an Italian restaurant on the north side of Chicago called Il Sorrento. And I had befriended a guy who was a dishwasher. His name was Dinty Moore. He's a real guy. He's not a beef stew. He was a real guy. <laughs> and he's the only man I ever saw could smoke and the ash never fell off. You know, he was just always talking. And, and Dinty and I became friends. And he was a dishwasher at Il Sorrento. He had a PhD. He had a doctorate. And guess where he lived? On the edge of Skid Row. And I would, he, I'd always give him a lift home. We'd go out drinking together, and I'd take him to the Amber Lantern, and we'd sit there, and we'd, which was down the road from where, where I drank. That was my cheers. That's the name of my bar was the Amber Lantern. 
It was an amber lantern, and you'd walk in, and you'd hit the lantern. And if you didn't hit the lantern, we knew you were an outsider. So watch out for them. But those of us who were in there, you always hit the lantern. I dropped into you off that night and uh, got in the car, and I decided to kill myself because everything was gone. Everything was gone in my life. I had gone from the top of the heap all the way. It took three years for me to boom. And uh, I got in that car, and I put the foot, I dropped Dinty off, put my foot on the floorboard, going like a maniac down Lakeshore Drive, and then I'm going down like a maniac down Michigan Avenue. Michigan Avenue is a 35-mile-an-hour street, and I'm doing 70 miles an hour. I'm not proud of this. I, I, I regret doing it. But thank God I never killed anybody. I never hit. And then Michigan Avenue turns into Lake. There's a tunnel you go through. And I went through that tunnel 70 miles an hour. And I went into a blackout at 70 miles. And I walked away from the car without a scratch on me. And I screamed on top of my lungs, God help me. And when I said the words, God help me, it's as if my shrink was in there. I was under psychiatric care. Um, I remember when my... First wife, Karen, and I were getting a divorce. We, we got married in the Catholic Church, and we went to the, we went to the uh, get counseling from uh, uh, the archdiocese, and it was on Wabash Avenue. I remember going upstairs. Downstairs was uh, a Japanese bar, which I wound up after the counseling. I couldn't miss that. Asahi beer is real good on an empty stomach. And, uh, and, and I remember the priest looking at me and saying, Phil, there's two things you need to do with your life. And I said, what's that, Father? And he said, the first thing is you need to stop drinking. As soon as he said that, I went deaf. <laughs> and I just saw his lips moving. And what he, what, he, what he said was, and you have to change your whole way of living. And isn't that Alcoholics Anonymous in a nutshell? Stop drinking and change our whole way of living. And he said, but you need psychiatric care. So I wound up with a shrink on Michigan Avenue, Dr. Reifman. I don't know if he's alive, but thank God for Dr. Reifman. He prescribed uh, Valium for me. And this is in the early 70s. They didn't know it's a diazepam. It's a tranquilizer. And they didn't know the effects of, of Valium on a, on a body. He told me, don't drink alcohol with it. <laughs> Oh really? I wonder. I wonder what that's like. And and I drank Tanqueray. My favorite drink were Tanqueray martinis, green bottle, red label. Mm -mm, makes my mouth water today. Makes and and I I could drink a fifth and a half of gin in about four hours. And I called them martinis, three shots, and that's that, in a fifth and a half you'll drink about fourteen martinis. And uh, and I'd pop a Valium after each one. And uh, boy, oh boy, <laughs> ladies would not like to hear from me in the morning, you know, it's just crazy things. I fell asleep in places that don't even have places. It was, it was a disaster. And, uh, and uh, it, it, how many of you have noticed my head shaking? I like to do this. How many of you have noticed my head shaking? Raise your hands. Come on. You're not going to fail. Just your imaginations. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 
50 year of my sobriety, I'm doing a talk in Sulphur Springs. I'm doing an anniversary talk in Sulphur Springs, 1980. After the meeting, at the end of the meeting, my head flops over on my shoulder. A guy comes up to me and says, after the meeting, you've got a brain tumor. I said, are you a doctor? He says, no, I'm just a member of AA. I said, oh, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> you, you know we, we know everything. And Marty's mom was a registered nurse when, when Marty and I were first dating. And we're going to sell, this is going to be our 40th year of marriage. And Marty's going to be celebrating her 40th birthday. First anniversary, yeah, it's amazing. So Marty's mom said, Phil, you better get your neck checked out. And I said, okay, and I finally did. And and I, they did the test, and they, they said, did you ever uh, do any outside issues? And they didn't say it that way. Did you ever do any drugs? And uh, I said, yeah. I said, I, you know, used to pop Valium once in a while. And, and I said, I used to smoke some other stuff, laced with PCP, with angel dust, you know. And he said, well, you got permanent nerve damage. And I said, what? He says, yeah, you damage the cortex of your nervous system. And that's when my head shakes. So Marty and I, in the summer times, when we used to go to Las Vegas, would walk down the strip and we'd go into the Flamingo Hilton. And uh, you can buy anything in Vegas. You can buy it. And this guy would take a picture of me that one time. And he digitized it on a sticky substance, put it on a ball of wood with a spring, and said to Marty, he said, would you like a bobblehead? She says, no, I already got one. <laughs> Marty was a flight attendant for 30 years. You know, she's a tough cookie, but she's got a heart of gold. I know that because that's, that's who Marty is. So... Dr. Reefman is the one that told me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. He just simply said, Phil, you need to go to AA. And my idea of AA was Skid Row Bums. I had no, you know, I saw Days of Wine and Roses. I saw, I used to drink watching Days of Wine and Roses. I saw other shows about it. But it was always, to me, Skid Row Bums. So, and it was as if my, my, uh, my first wife was in the car with me the night I said, God help me. And, and, uh. I was sitting at the Amber Lantern one night, and this crazy woman walks in screaming, yelling. She's got a, a sharp knife in her hand, and her hair is just going in all directions. She's got a house coat on. And, she, and I said, I'm going to watch one of my buddies die, and it was my wife. Yeah. And she pulled me off that bar stool and dragged me home, sat me down, put the knife down, and looked at me and said, Phil, if you want to drink, drink here. She did not have a drop to drink when she walked in there. She had no drugs in her system. She was stone-cold nuts. <laughs> Normal people don't. And that's what we do. That's what, if you want to know how sick a family member is, don't look at the alcoholic. Look at the family member. They're the ones that really, really can indicate how sick that alcoholic is. And... Uh, Karen left. She took my five-year-old daughter and uh, never came back. Um, I came home one time. I was in a blackout. I came to Dallas. Went to the Wilshire Theater. I watched The Exorcist. I had a nervous breakdown from that movie. Satan was after me. I was with Satan on the subway in Chicago. I'm standing there, and this little guy looks up to me. He's got tuxedo on, and everything looks at me, and I'm smelling sulfur. And I'm going, who are you? 
And he said, I'm Beelzebub. And I said, Beelzebub, who? He says, I'm Satan. And I said, what do you want? He says, I want your soul filled. I said, go to hell. And I didn't see him again. He just, <laughs> that simple. But that's, I can imagine the people sitting around me going, woo, we didn't get off this train. But I was a real goofhead. I mean, I, I, was, I hallucinated even in the early days of my sobriety. I called a priest in, in, in uh, Dallas at uh, St. Monica, and I said, Father, I think I need an exorcism. I was about two months sober. I said, Father, I think I need an exorcism. Exorcism. And I told him the story. He says, no, I think you need a shrink. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when he introduced me to Father Gail White. I don't know if any of you ever knew Father Gail, but he was a wonderful Al-Anon who... Gracie Aronowski was his sponsor, and, but, but Gail helped hundreds and hundreds, maybe a thousand of us alcoholics and Al-Anons on the spiritual part. He was my spiritual advisor, and he died about three years, four years ago. No, longer than that. 2013. That's right, nine years ago. And uh, never came back. My, Karen and... My daughter, Laura. It was as if my dad was in the car with me the night I screamed out, God help me. And I'll never forget my father. I never saw my dad cry. Never saw him except once. And it was after a dinner party that we had for my parents. And I was coming in and I was smoking the funny weed and I was higher than the kite. I'm not, oh, by the way, I'm not an anda. I'm not an alcoholic and a drug addict. I kicked drugs long before I, I kicked alcohol. You know how I did it? I doubled my alcohol consumption. <laughs> That's how I did it. I love it. Dave told me about a meeting in, in L.A. where people introduced themselves as Andas in an A meeting. And this one guy, after that, he says, yeah, my name is Joe. I'm an alcoholic and an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just an alcoholic. I, you know, I got rid of those drugs a long time ago. And... Uh, and my father approached me, and he had tears in his eyes, and he grabbed me, and he gave me a bear, bear hug, and he whispered in my ear, Buddy, I don't want to lose you, and you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your daughter, you're going to lose your wife, you're going to lose your life. And that was my alcoholic father talking to his alcoholic son. And uh, like I said, my daddy died of, of an alcoholic brain tumor. There's only two ways you can get a brain tumor. It's either cancer or alcohol consumption, being an alcoholic. And it was as if a bartender friend of mine was sitting in the car with me the night. He said, God help me. And I was at the Amber Lantern. He reached underneath the bar, pulled out a brown paper bag, and he handed it to me. And, uh, and he said, uh, Phil, take this home and read it. And I opened it up, and it was the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the description in the front of the book was, Love is delight in another's well-being. Uh, and I said, the guy's hitting on me. <laughs> what, is, what is this here, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I opened the book to the doctor's opinion, and it has a teeny print, and I was, said, I'm going to go blind reading this thing. I'm not an alcoholic. Why did Don give me this book? He'd pad my bar bill, and I'd, I'd pay him back eventually, you know, and, and, uh, and Don and I hung around together. We drank together for a year. I always liked to hang around people who drank like I did. 
I didn't hang around with teetotalers. I hang around with two-fisted drinkers. And it was just a way of life. And one night I walked in and I was supposed to meet Don at the bar. And Nick, the owner of the Amber Lantern, said, no, Don's not here. He said he just killed himself. Took a thirty-eight and he blew his heart out. And Don was as much an alcoholic as I was. And I believe Don left into the arms of a loving God when he killed himself that night. Most people get a big book from your sponsor. Uh, you get one from your treatment center. You get one from a counselor. Mine costs a human life. It's the most precious piece of literature I have outside of the Bible. Outside of my Bible, that's the second most important piece of literature. I have it bound in a leather bind, and it's falling apart, you know. You use that thing for 46 years, it doesn't stay together necessarily. I'm not going to have it rebound. But that was, those were the four people that intervened on. I was intervened on four times, and... I went home that night. I I was the youngest business manager of an opera company in the United States in 1980. I was business manager, controller of Lyric Opera Chicago. I produced over 40 operas, hundreds of employees. I was a legend in my own mind. I came from I came from that Polish old Polish neighborhood, and I I did something with with my life, and and I loved show business. I mean, I just loved it. I miss it today. I miss it today. Every I'm I'm an opera holic. I I live in Santa Fe in the summer. Marty and I live in New Mexico. We have a home in 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 New Mexico and five months out of the year. And I'm I'm I go to the Santa Fe Opera. I go to the Dallas Opera. I'm just an opera holic, and I love Puccini. Oh, I just love Puccini and Verdi. Uh, I'm a wapaholic. You know, that's <laughs> those of you who understand that, and. Uh, and and I left the opera company, and I was always searching. I was a human doing. I had this hole in me that I couldn't fix, and I always wanted to prove that I was important and something and somebody. And and I went to another job. And then I, I I got to work for Arthur Wirtz. He owned the Chicago Blackhawks. Stand up, brother. Show him that jersey. He wore that. And he wore that for me tonight. Isn't that great? Look at that. Look at that. Dougie, Dougie wore that jersey. Doug and I, the last time I saw Doug, we were at the Winter Classic at the, in the Cotton Bowl a couple years ago, and Doug really suffered. Boy, he got sick and, and was in, hospitalized for a long time. And it was so great seeing him when I walked in tonight. That was great, as well as my other friends, too. You're a good guy, brother. Thanks for, thanks for being a part of this. And... uh I went to work for Arthur Wirtz. He owned the Blackhawks, the Bulls, Chicago State. I took care of the Chicago Stadium. I took care of his bank holding companies. Uh, that was my background. I, I eventually got a degree in accounting and, uh, and that's when I really, that's when I really hit my bottom. That's when I finally went smash. And that night I walked into the apartment, I was sleeping on a mattress. And here I am, this, this junior executive working for, for Wurtz Corporations. And I'm this 
and I'm sleeping on the floor on a mattress with with one of my secretaries. That is sick. And I walked in, and there was a note on the mattress that said, Phil, leave your key here. Go to AA. Now, I had been taking her to Al-Anon meetings. <laughs> and I'd go on Clark Street to uh, Flanagan's. Flanagan's was an Irish bar on Clark Street. And I'd get an Irish accent. I, you know, this Polish guy. Well, what you say there? You know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and then I'd, I'd forget to pick her up. And she'd, some Al-Anon, you know how many Al-Anons it takes to screw in a light bulb? None. They detach and let the light bulb screw itself. <laughs> I had to fit that in somewhere during the talk. I said, I got to get that one in. And that's what she did for me. She, the reason why I'm here is because I didn't want to lose that mattress. I'm wearing, I'm wearing a suit, a shirt and tie, junior executive, and, and here I am. I'm a skid row bum on the inside. Maybe not on the outside, but on the inside. I was 10 minutes away from a cardboard box. I didn't realize how close I was to that cardboard box underneath the bridge. Thank you, God, for not having to give me that experience. Maybe, maybe it would have even been more beneficial than what I went through. I don't know. Then I called Alcoholics Anonymous the next day. I'm working for Wurtz and called the Metropolitan Intergroup Alcoholics Anonymous. My name's Phil. I'm an, I'm been told I'm supposed to call you. And, uh, the lady said, what's your phone number? I said, well, I, I, I didn't have a phone number. I had an office phone number. Now I'm homeless, right? So I gave her my office phone number. She said, somebody will call you in a few minutes. So I ran upstairs, and I didn't, because when they answered the phone, they announced everybody, you have a phone call. And I could just say, oh, somebody from Alcoholics Anonymous is calling you. <laughs> and I knew that was going to happen. And sure enough, a guy called me. His name was Tom, Tom D., Tom Doherty. And Tom said, uh, would you like to go to a meeting of AA tonight? And I said, no. And he said, why not? I said, I'm captain of my bowling team. I have a high average of 75, and they need me. <laughs> and he said, okay, pal, don't take that first drink. I'll call you tomorrow. And he called me the next day. And I went bowling that night. I didn't go bowling. I went drinking. I didn't go fishing. I went drinking. I didn't go golfing. I went drinking. I didn't go to Chicago Bear games to watch the games. I would sit Soldier Field, 10 below zero, drinking blackberry brandy, watching watching uh, Dick Butkus and all the guys out there, and I'm freezing, and I'm thinking this blackberry brandy is going to keep me warm. I didn't know that alcohol is a dehydrant. It, it cools you off. No, 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 I'm there. Nuts. He called me the second day and said, I'd like to take you to a meeting tonight. And I said, no, I can't. He said, are you married? And I said, my wife just divorced me. He said, oh, you lost that to drinking. And I said, that didn't have anything to do with drinking. So we didn't like each other. And he said, okay, pal, I'll call you tomorrow. And the next day he called, I'll, I'd like to take you to a meeting. I finally said, okay, the only way I can get rid of this guy is never talk to him again. But okay. He said, where do you live? And I gave him the address of where I used to live with my first wife and my daughter. 
And I didn't want him to think I was a bum. So I, I got access to the apartment and, and I wanted him to think that I, cause I had no place to live now. And the doorbell rang and I went running down that night and I forgot to put my pants on. I had, and I wanted to look good cause I'm a human doing, right? And I had my shirt and tie. I had my, my suit coat and no trowel. And I'm walking down the stairs and he's looking up at me and he says, Go put your pants on. And I went and got, and he pointed his finger at me and he said, Pal, Alcoholics Anonymous isn't for people that need it. Alcoholics Anonymous is for people that want it. And what that meant was, Phil, you, I hope you've hit a bottom because this program only works for people who have hit a bottom. It doesn't work for, you know, skimming on top of the water. It's, it's for people who have finally said, I give up. I'll do anything to stay sober. And I got in the car. There was a motorcycle gang member next to me, and Tom is driving. In the back seat of him is a Native American from Chippewa Indian. Beautiful uh, braids, black braids. Very tall man, hunched over because his head would have gone through the roof. And next to him is a, uh, a elderly woman. And next to her is some guy smoking a pipe. It looks like he found the full meaning of the serenity prayer. <laughs> he just, now, I said, I said, the first slit sign I see, I am jumping out of this automobile. And I made every green light to my first AA meeting. That car didn't stop once. <laughs> I was born on the feast day of Gabriel, Raphael, and Michael, the archangels. So don't mess with me. They've been protecting me my whole life. They're, they're with me, I know right now. I have, I believe in angels. I believe, I believe all of you are angels. And we help each other in, in an angelic way here in the program. And the first thing that happened to me when I walked up those stairs was a Belarusian church in Logan Square in the north side of Chicago. It was a big book meeting and I walked up the stairs and a woman's hand came out, shook my hand and said, just like tonight, the first time I met a woman, the first person I walked in, Shook my hand. That was the first thing that happened to me 46 years ago. And she said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. We're going to have cake and coffee after the meeting. And I went, wow, what a draw for AA. <laughs> cake and coffee. Your, hell's, your basket has gone to hell. I mean, your life has gone to hell in the basket. And, you're, you know, and I walked down the stairs, and people were sitting in a circle, and they had the, they had the big books in their hand. And I sat down. And uh, they opened it up with the serenity prayer like we did tonight. And then they looked at me and they said, now, Phil, we want you to listen to what we're going to say. We'll let you read. And it was Bill's story. They were reading Bill's story that night because they, they would go through the first 164 pages and then back to the, back to Bill's story. And, and, and they said, you can read a little bit, but please, we don't want you to share with us. Just listen. Uh, the good thing they said that, and and I listened. And Tom, the guy that drove me there, uh, who would eventually become my sponsor, uh, Tom committed a felony in Georgia in 1950, and he wound up on the chain gang in Georgia as a, as a result of his drinking. And he talked about two guys coming into that chain gang, chain gang unit and sobering him up and taking him to A. And 25 years later, he's now he took me to my first A meeting. What he's doing is the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous. Pass it on. 
pass on the things that have been given to us. It's that simple. We don't have to be A, geniuses. We just do the things that have been given to us. That's our calling. Just pass on with a handshake, a hug, a, a, a kind word of encouragement. And, and Tom eventually became my sponsor. He gave me my first piece of, second piece of literature, the 24-hour day book. And, and that was used all over the United States before our book, Reflections. And I, mine looks like it's been through a war zone, you know. He told me to read it the first morning of my sobriety, April 10th. And I picked it up, and it's a, it's a uh, thought for the day, meditation for the day, prayer for the day. And I'm looking at it, and I'm reading it, and saying, bleh, 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 bleh. You know, I was an atheist agnostic at that time. I threw away my faith. I threw it, and I will never do that again. I've learned the hard lesson. I will never, ever throw away the faith that God has given back to me through Alcoholics Anonymous. I will never, ever do that. I'll never walk away from AA, and I'll never walk away from my faith. God forbid that I ever do. If, if I do, lock me up or bury me, either way. And, and then, and then the, the uh, elderly woman talked about how she used to hide her bottles in the toilet tank. So she, she, and I said, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> now I'm finding out. You guys gave me secrets to drinking I never, I should have, could always used. Why do you tell me when it's too late? <laughs> and she was in the program. And the Native American talked about how he was a Native American. And he said, we're cursed. He said, our culture, for some reason, we become alcoholics the minute we take that alcohol. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and the motorcycle gang member talked about his old neighborhood and the gang and wanting to be a gangster. And I could relate. I could relate to everybody that night. I was so blessed to have those people exactly where, you know, where we are tonight is exactly where we should be. No place else. Exactly where we should be in our life ahead of us will be exactly what we, what we choose to do through Alcoholics Anonymous. And at the end of the meeting, we held hands and, uh, and they said the Lord's Prayer. Well, I didn't say the Lord's Prayer because now I'm an atheist agnostic. I could pray in Latin. I could have shown all these people. I used to say the Lord's Prayer in Latin during the Mass. And uh, I didn't say it. And, and the Native American came up to me afterward after they closed the meeting. He said, I noticed you didn't pray with us, Phil. I said, no. I said, I, you know, I don't, this God stuff, I don't, I won't accept, I can't accept it. He says, well, you know, I said it. And I said, yeah. And he says, you know, I'm a red man. I'm, I'm, I'm an Indian. And I said the Lord's Prayer. And I said, yeah, why? He says, because when in Rome, do as the Romans do. <laughs> we make fun of the expression, fake it till you make it. No, that's for real. That's for real. Fake it till you make it. That really counts. Repetition, over doing the same thing. Eventually, we, we come to believe. We come to believe. Tom took me home that night and... Uh, I fell in love with my very first AA meeting. I did all my relapsing before I got here. I did all my, I don't have to relapse to prove that I'm an alcoholic. Did all my relapsing and, and uh, I, uh, I ran away from home, took a geographic cure. I was, I was five months sober, ran away from home, wound up here in, in uh, Dallas, Texas. And 
I want to tell you how I took my second step. Um, I hadn't seen my daughter in a while. My first wife called me and said, Phil, Laura wants to see you. Will you come and take her out tonight? And I said, sure. And I picked her up. I said, where do you want to go? She said, let's go bowling, Daddy. I said, bowling? She said, yeah, you used to go bowling on Monday nights. And I said, do you remember that? She said, sure. You used to read Jack and the Beanstalk to me every Monday night, and then all of a sudden you stopped, and you said you were going bowling. And I said, oh, okay. You know why kids love to hear Jack and the Beanstalk? Because Jack always gets away from the giant. And that's where we've escaped the giant for one more night tonight. We've escaped the giant. He's out there waiting for us, but we ain't going there. We're sticking here with each other. Most important word in the 12 steps is the very first word, other than God. The most important word, first word, is we. This is how we do it. One alcoholic helping another. Not a dozen alcoholics helping another. It's one alcoholic helping another. And I took her to the bowling alley, and I took her into the bar of the bowling alley, and she said, Daddy, don't go in there. And I said, why not? She said, because you're going to drink beer. And I said, no, Lord, Daddy's not going to drink beer. I'm not going to. I don't drink any of that anymore. The reason why I was taking you in here was so that you and I can have a Coca-Cola together. And she took my hand and she kissed it. And that's how I came to believe that a power greater than myself had restored me to sanity. We all have our second steps stories. That's mine. I've been telling it for the last 46 years. Uh... I had my first summer with my daughter sober, and then she moved away to Lewisburg, Tennessee. My first wife got married to uh, Daryl, and I was visiting with my daughter every night on the phone. And, and sometime in August of 75, I got in a fight with my first wife. You know, I, I, I was not a very, I, I should have been going to Jerkaholics Anonymous, you know? And, all of a sudden, Daryl got on the phone and said, we change your daughter's name. We, we uh, stay away from us. We never want to see you again. Well, you know, now I'm really homeless. I mean, I, got, I have nothing. I can't fight anybody or anything. And uh, so I decided, well, the thing I'm going to do is I'm going to kill my first wife and husband. I'm going to go to Lewisburg, Tennessee. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kidnap my little girl, and we're going to live happily ever after. <laughs> so I'm driving. I had this beat-up old car I bought in a bar from a cop in Chicago way back then. Don't turn me in. Way back then with a phony title and everything. And I mean, this car, it didn't even have a radio. It had an antenna that went up and down, and I sit there with, at the stoplights, impressing people with my antenna going up and down, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I put on my army fatigues and my, my army boots, and I'm heading up Kennedy Expressway. I'm going to hop a plane. I'm going to go to Lewisburg, Tennessee, like I said. And all of a sudden, I hear in my head, don't make any major decisions the first year of your sobriety. <laughs> and I'm going, I wonder if this is a major decision or not, you know? <laughs> I'd better check it out. So I went to the AA meeting that night. I walked in. I sat down. My sponsor comes in. Happy Halloween. I said, what do you mean, happy Halloween? He said, why are you dressed up like G.I. Joe? I said, oh, this. I said, I'm, I'm going to 
Tennessee, I'm going to whack my first wife and her husband. <laughs> and kidnap my little, and I said, I wanted to make a meeting first. <laughs> and he said, would you get me the big book, Phil? And I got him the big book, and he said, turn it to the chapter, working with others. I turned it to the chapter, working with others. And he said, read the last paragraph, and the last paragraph says, I'm going to paraphrase it. It says, alcohol is only a symbol, uh, symbol of our problems that, that we've set ourselves up for. I'm just paraphrasing what it says. And the, but the last part says, we have stopped fighting anyone or anything. We have to. And it's in italics. And anything in the big book that's in italics, I'd better pay attention to it. I don't have to underline things. It, it's underlined for me when it's in italics. It's one of the most important phrases in the big book. We have I went home that night, hung up my G.I. Joe stuff, and I called my attorney the next day, and he said, Phil, you don't have the time nor the money to go into custody battle. You're going to have to just let it go. And that's the very, one of the very first times I, I quit fighting anyone or anything. And I did it sober. And I moved to Texas, and I uh, I got a letter while I was here from my first wife. And she says, we want you to adopt Laura. And I said, hmm, where are my combat fatigues, you know? <laughs> I'm, and I, I took it to my home group, the Alpha group, and I talked to a lawyer friend of mine, Bob Wildman. He's dead now. And I said, what do I do, Bob? And he took me in front of the eighth and ninth step, and he pointed to it, and he said, you put your money where your mouth is. That's what the amends step is. You don't make amends on your terms. You make amends on other people that you've hurt. You make it on their terms. And I signed those adoption papers, and I sent it away, and I felt, I felt clean. I finally did something for somebody else without getting a pat on the back or, wow, you're a great guy. That's what anonymity is all about, is doing things for others and not being a show-off about it. And I lived with that. and. Then I got a letter. I hadn't seen my daughter from 1975, and now, now Marty and I are married, and I get a letter in the mail, and it's, and it's from my daughter, Laura. And she says, Dad, I've got spaces in my teeth just like you. I got Terry Thomas teeth. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and she says, I'm flat-chested just like Mom. And I said, where would she get this? And Marty and I were standing at gate number 26, DFW Airport, waiting for my little girl to come walking off. I hadn't seen her in 11 years. Now she's an 18-year-old woman. She walked down that, walked out that door, and I'm crying. Marty's crying. Even people around us are crying. <laughs> and I took my daughter's hand and I kissed it. Passing on. Whatever's been given to us, Good, healthy, wholesome, passing on. Um, I danced at my daughter's wedding. Uh, I even gave a eulogy. She wanted me to read Cahil Gibran at her wedding. Uh, it was a very eclectic wedding. She married a Jew whose father is a Baptist minister, <laughs> uh, whose stepfather. And they met in the canopy and the break the glass and Christian sayings. I mean, it was really wonderful, you know. And and uh, and I held my granddaughter a few years ago, Marty and I. My son-in-law was one of the first troops in Iraq. 
uh, when they had that experience and he I gave him a, he's a Jew. I gave him a St. Christopher medal. I said, you wear this on the outside. Don't let anybody know you're Jewish. You're dead meat, you know? And unfortunately, I heard about what's going on in Colleyville, praying for those people. I hope to God that they, they survive this mess. And uh, I got to hold my granddaughter, and, and uh, Marty and I were talking about it today, about our families and um, I got the last time I got to see my daughter was uh, 11 years ago. It was at my cousin's wedding, and she cut me off. I, I don't. I've written to her, or telephoned. I made my amends to her, verbally. I made my amends physically to her. I don't know what's going on. Uh, I love her. I pray for her, Jeff. I'm going to receive communion tomorrow uh, at my church. I've gone back to church. And every time I receive communion, I bless Marty and our pets. I always bless our pets because they're God's, they're God's gifts to us. And, uh, and I bless Laura, Jeff, Diana, and Catherine. And I haven't seen them in over 10 years. But I'm not going to let a resentment keep me away from loving my, my family. Who knows? Maybe I'll see them again. Maybe I won't. Uh, not every story has a has an ending that we want, but God has a story of the endings that we want. I live by 12 words. The first six are trust God, clean house, help others. And the second six I learned from Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie. <laughs> Marty and I are Queen fans. We're going to be there in Fort Worth January 29th listening to the Fort Worth Symphony performing Queen with a with a with a queen uh, uh, fake outfit, not, you know, it's, they're not going to be the real queen. But we love the music and the film. You know, the lifestyle is not my kind of lifestyle. That's that's. The, but the music, and every time Freddie Mercury would leave his house, his daddy would put his arms on on top of Freddie and he'd say, "Freddie, good thoughts, good words, good deeds." And and when I heard that. I'm I'm 42 years sober, and when I heard that, I went, my gosh, that's Alcoholics Anonymous. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. So those are the 12 words I live by. Trust God, clean house, help others, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. And I'd like to close with, I always close with these. My heroes, I have many heroes. And, you know, I have football heroes, baseball heroes, and and music heroes, but these two guys are, are, are my number one heroes, and it's Dr. Bob and Bill W. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for Lois, we wouldn't be here. You know that movie Kill Bill? Well, it could have been that, you know? <laughs> it could have been that, and we wouldn't be here. The most she did was throw a shoe at him, and that was it. And then she said, you know, Bill, you're not a failure helping other alcoholics. You're staying sober yourself. So I want to quote Dr. Bob in the last paragraph of his story in the big book. And it's in, it's from, uh, it's in page uh, 181. And this is a quote from Dr. Bob, what he said in the book. But if you really and truly want to quit drinking liquor for good and all, and sincerely feel that you must have some help, we know that we have an answer for you. It never fails. If you go about it 
with one half the zeal you have been in the habit of showing when you are getting another drink. Your heavenly Father will never let you down. And then Bill, in a talk that he gave in Los Angeles, I quote him now. I like to do this at the end of my talks. Bill gave this talk April 9th, 1947. It's a part of his closing in his talk. And he said, I want to remind myself and any who would listen that AA is not a personal success story. It is instead the story of our colossal human failures now converted into the happiest kind of usefulness by that divine alchemy, the living grace of God. Thanks for having me out. Thank you so much, Chicago Phil. That was absolutely fantastic. If you're out there and you're listening to this podcast, uh, if you would take time, please, to pause your device and share it with uh, another friend or family member. It may be just what they need today. Chicago Phil is absolutely fantastic. You can, you can share either his episode or share all the other episodes as well. Uh, we really would appreciate it. Now, on to a little bit of listener feedback. Sandy D writes in and she says, Hi, John. I loved listening to Maria R. She's talking about Maria R's episode. It was about moms, and uh, she did a great job with that, Maria did. Uh, anyway, uh, Sandy D said, okay, I can't help it. In my head, there's like, uh, what was that That movie? Grease, right? And I'm, 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 uh, I'm singing that, look at me, I'm San- no, Sandra D, I think is what it was called. Uh, anyway, and, and for those of you who know the movie or know the song, that's probably going to be stuck in your head as well. And I'm, I'm so sorry, but nonetheless, Sandy D said, I love listening to Maria R. I have tremendous guilt with my two daughters. I was sober for four years, but started again nine months ago. I enjoy listening to Sober Speak. Well, thank you, Sandy. Appreciate you writing in. And as you know, I copied uh, Maria on uh, uh, an email. And uh, I hope you two can get together and uh, uh, form a relationship there. Carla writes in and Carla says, hi, John, I live in Owasso, uh, Oklahoma. I, I love Reno, John. I've listened to your podcast for a while. My sobriety date is 12, 25, 95. Oh, Christmas day. Uh, and your speakers really help me being as I'm in, I'm wheelchair bound and I can't physically go to meetings. Thank you for accepting me to the Facebook group. Um, best Carla. Well, thank you, Carla, for writing in. And I'm so glad that you allow Sober Speak to be a part of your journey. And uh, we can provide you some uh, community. Uh, and um, thank you so much for writing in. I appreciate that. Andrea writes in, by the way, is it Andrea or is it Andrea? I know that people pronounce this in a different way, but I'm going right now with Andrea. Andrea says, hi, John, I'm still loving your podcast. 
and all the wonderful speakers you bring on. I'm so grateful to God for being this message through you. I love Reno John, there's his name again, David G, Rick W, Renee E, Joe M, and so many more. But my absolute favorite is Brenda J. I'm just such a fangirl of hers, and I would travel anywhere to hear her speak in person. Please add me to your super duper secret Facebook page so I can be part of the amazing community. God bless you and your family. And thanks again, Andrea D, 93 days sober by the grace of God. Well, congrats on your 93 and probably more right, when you, when you are uh, listening to this. But uh, that's great. And, uh, and we're glad to have you in the super duper secret Facebook group. Oh, and uh, if there's somebody out there and you're wondering how to join, you used to have to kind of write me at John, J-O-H-N, SoberSpeak.com. And anybody can still do that if you want to reach out. However, you, if you want to join the Facebook group, all you got to do is go on to the Facebook group page, find, uh, go to Facebook and search for Sober Speak Secret Group and ask for admission and we'll get you on in there, all right? Nick writes in and Nick says, thank you for all you do. I'm on day 17 after a relapse, but, feel, but feeling very good overall, Nick G. Well, Nick G, I'm glad you are on the right path again. And thank you for uh, writing in. I appreciate it. Annie writes in and she says, uh, Hey, John M. Uh, oh, because I had, uh, I had, so she asked to be part of the Facebook group and I wrote her a little note and said, you know, welcome and all that kind of stuff. And she says, it's very nice to hear from you, John M. I will say this is the first time I've ever been welcomed to a Facebook group or a podcast. It's quite a lovely feeling. A quick introduction from me. I'm from Canton, Ohio, just a few minutes down the road from Dr. Bob's house. I have been there, Annie, so I have been in your area. Anyway, she says, surprisingly or not, I didn't arrive at the doorstep of AA to get sober, but to learn how to drink responsibly. And I've heard people say that before, like, I wanted to learn how to drink like a lady or a gentleman. Anyway, I get it, Annie. She says, fortunately, God had other plans for me. And I've been in the fellowship since September 29th of 2008. My story, the typical experience, strength and hope, every one of those promises in the big book have materialized and above all else, my relationship with God and my primary purpose on page 77 of the big book is golden. I've listened to Sober Speak on and off for a while now, but I recently dropped in to hear Rick W from the Take the 12 website. Yep. Yeah, he, uh, Rick did a great job. She says, I'm a sucker for, quote, secret groups, unquote, that allow me to join in big book studies and AA history. Oh, yeah. She says, I do a little website for my sponsees that has become a nice tool for others in my area. It's called studythebigbook.com. And so I want to let you all know, I went out there and I checked that out and it was a, it was chock full of nuts. So if you want to go to, uh, the website here Annie puts on is called Study the Big Book 
com. Once again, that's studythebigbook.com. I, I recommend it. There was some good stuff out there. I even saw some uh, recordings of people. Uh, there was a gentleman named, I think, Doc or something like that, taking uh, people through the steps and such like that. So anyway, it's a great little website if you are looking for a resource. And then Andy, go, Andy goes on, I live the 12 and 12, uh, the 12 by 6, uh, 12 and 6, 8, oh, 12, oh, 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 I, I live the 12 and 12 and the 12 and 6 a.m. active in general service and the local intergroup. And that, my friend, is my first AA bio outside of a meeting or 12-step call. Happy to meet you. Uh, Annie P, a recovered alcoholic. Well, Annie P, a recovered alcoholic, so nice to meet you as well. And thank you for writing in. And I hope people check out your website, studythebigbook.com. Jennifer writes in, and uh, the title is, uh, the subject line was Al-Anon. Jennifer says, hi, John, I am new to your podcast, but I just wanted to say how much I appreciate you having Billy K and Vinoy S from Al-Anon on to talk about using the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in Al-Anon. And I want to tell you, Jennifer, your email made me realize, well, I've realized this before and then I don't take action on it, but this time I took a little bit more action. I reached out to Billy K and uh, she's going to be back on the podcast. We actually have her uh, scheduled to, it's going to be a couple of months before I get her recorded uh, because I've, I just have so many people on the schedule between now and then. But nonetheless, we're going to get her recorded and uh, uh, have another episode from Billy Kay out. So I, anyway, Jennifer, thank you for writing in. So Jennifer goes on, I came into al in 2016 and started working the steps, the quote, Al-Anon way, unquote, using the Al-Anon conference approved literature with a sponsor. I was only getting a little better with my dysfunctional thinking and Al-Anon isms. As Vinoy said, uh, it was only it, it, it was only until I started attending open AA meetings and hearing the big book read that I started to truly understand the disease of alcoholism. In January, I came across an Al-Anon big book study, not Vinoy's that is posted on your podcast notes, but rather one out of Dallas, Texas. And I found a sponsor in that meeting, a lady who lives in Texas, who took me through the big book and had me work the steps precisely as outlined in the big book. And for those of you who aren't aware, I guess there's a little bit of a, and by the way, this is just me talking right now. This is not Jennifer. Uh, Jennifer, uh, uh, there is, I don't know if you call it a controversy. There's just different ways of working the Al-Anon program. There are those who use the Al-Anon uh, literature, and by the way, this is my understanding, right? I'm, I'm no uh, professional at this. And there are others who use the big book to do that, and probably a combination of both. But nonetheless, that's what she's talking about. There aren't enough words, says Jennifer, to explain how grateful I am for AA. The big books, the few big book studies we come across from an Al-Anon perspective that I have found on Zoom and the ability to work these steps as outlined in the book, it has been a, in big capital letters, life changing experience for me. I hope you will continue to have Al-Anons who have worked the steps in the big book so we can reach more people. Well, 
your wish is my command. As I just told you, we got to have Billy Kay back. And she says, I know Al-Anons who have been on step four for, in big capital letters, years and still haven't finished. Thanks for all you do. I have learned so much already. Feel free to pass my email on to Vinoy and or Billy Kay and let them know how grateful I am to have heard them speak. Jennifer, P.S., I am from Illinois, 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 where you get the side eye if you even so as mention a word from the big book in an Al-Anon meeting. Oh no, Jennifer, this doesn't make sense to me, but anyway, uh, hey, uh, everyone's got their ways, right? Last but not least, Deontay writes in, Hello, John. My name is Deontay, and I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is September 18th of 20. I live in Las Vegas, Nevada, and the recovery here is absolutely amazing. Tons of meetings daily. I have just started listening to your podcast while at work, and it is truly amazing. I recently found out that you have a Facebook group and I did request to join the group and I'm just waiting on a response and I know Deontay that I have replied or that that uh, you you have been admitted to the crazy house we call the, the Facebook group it's like being admitted to a psych ward but anyway he says thank you for everything you do I love hearing the stories of people you have speaking on your podcast big praying hands. And then he says, thank you for taking time to read this email. And I hope you have a wonderful day, big heart. Well, thank you, Deontay. I really, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Uh, I, I can't, could be Deontay. Nah, it's probably right. D-E-O-N-T-E, Deontay. I'm, I'm going to guess I'm doing it right. Nonetheless, that's it. So we wrap up another week I take this one week at a time. Hope to be back next week with Ewan's. Uh, may God bless you and keep you until then. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Love y'all.